Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. The end of an era is currently underway in Germany. The race came down to a nice edge, but a left-leaning party has narrowly won Germany's election, toppling the 16-year reign of Angela Merkel's centre-right. Last week, millions of Germans went to the polls to elect a new leader, Chancellor Angela Merkel, standing down after being in charge of the country for 16 years. Today, we find out how a scientist from East Berlin ended up going toe-to-toe with the likes of Putin and Trump. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. Last week, the polling booths closed in one of the most unpredictable elections Germany has seen in recent history. Angela Merkel's Conservatives suffering a narrow loss to the centre-left Social Democrats, led by a man called Olaf Scholz. It's the first time since Germany reunified in 1990 that their current leader, Angela Merkel, the woman known as Germany's Mutti or mother, has not run as a candidate. Despite spending so much time at the top of her game, the politician voted Forbes' most powerful woman for nine years straight has kept her private life very private. She was born in Hamburg in West Germany, but her family relocated to the communist east when she was just a few weeks old, while the region was still occupied by the Soviets. She studied physics from 1973 to 1978 in Leipzig and then applied for an assistant professorship at an engineering school. When she arrived at the university, she was met by an officer who'd come to recruit her, asking her to agree to report on her colleagues to the Ministry for State Security, the much-feared intelligence agency known as the Stasi. Merkel declined, telling them she couldn't keep secrets well enough to be an effective spy. She would then join the staff at the Central Institute of Physical Chemistry at the Academy of Sciences. She was also awarded a doctorate for her thesis on quantum chemistry in 1986. She would remain at the research centre until the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. Instead of going to the wall that day, Merkel said she went to the sauna instead, because that's what she did every Thursday. She said she figured the wall had opened and it was hardly going to close again. It was then that she decided to abandon the lab and look to a career in politics. Over the next 16 years, she would work her way up through the ranks of the Christian Democratic Union before being elected Chancellor and Head of Government in 2005, becoming the first woman and first former East German to hold the position. 
She would spend the next 16 years creating a reputation as a calm and focused no-fuss leader who would stand her ground with the man who led the world, all while transforming Germany into a global economic and technological powerhouse. In 2018, she announced that she would step down at the 2021 election, saying she would not be seeking any political post after her term ended. While making the statement, her iconic poker face faltered at times, looking sad as she declared her official farewell to politics. She said she took full responsibility for recent poor performance, referring to her party losing voters in regional elections, saying the time had come to open a new chapter. When she steps down later this year, her 16 years in the top job will make her one of the longest-serving German leaders, equaling Helmut Kohl, Angela's mentor. But what about the woman herself, the actual person behind the politician? The small pieces of information we have about Angela's private life from various interviews over the years paint a picture of a dedicated and strong woman who likes her routines. She starts each day having breakfast with her quantum chemistry professor husband, Joachim Sauer. The pair reportedly enjoy hiking and going to the opera. Her hubby also likes to save money where he can, often flying budget airlines instead of jumping on the government jets with his wife. She has said that she approaches her job as leader the same way that she would have approached her job as a scientist. People often accuse me of not acting fast enough, that I let things go on too long. For me, it's important that I deliberate all options, different ways of doing it, running through scenarios and not simply theoretical experiments in my head. In 2001, Angela was elected the Cabbage Queen in Oldenburg, saying her favourite meal is green cabbage and metwurst, or minced pork sausage. She's reportedly an excellent chef, but due to the pressures of her job, has had little time in the past two decades to spend in the kitchen. She's also a soccer fan, spending time with the German World Cup team who took home the trophy in 2014. So what else do we know about one of Europe's most renowned leaders? Matt Fitzpatrick is a professor in the College of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences at Flinders University in South Australia. He specialises in European history, European imperialism, German liberalism and nationalism. Matt, how did Angela Merkel actually get her start in politics? Merkel started out as a fairly apolitical kind of individual. She was more interested in her scientific work when she was inside East Germany. But around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening up of East Germany to West Germany and also the meshing of the politics of those two places, she became pretty quickly interested in politics. She gravitated to the conservative side of politics. She joined a movement that then became a party called the Alliance for Germany, which was kind of a conservative East German party. And then once, of course, the two Germanys became one, then she joined the CDU. But before that, as I said, she hadn't really been involved in politics when she was living in the GDR. You said that she's more towards a conservative side of politics, but where has she stood on major issues? I mean, obviously, they would have had discussions about women's rights and about gay marriage and things like that. Obviously, conservatives known to not really be okay with those things. Where has she stood on those kinds of issues? I mean, in some of those issues, she's stood more as a centrist than a conservative, and on other issues, she's been fairly obviously conservative. 
So take the issue of same-sex marriage. It's quite true that she was the guiding force bringing a vote to the Bundestag on the issue of same-sex marriage and enabled that vote. But it's important also that we realise that as she was casting her vote, she did so in a way that made it clear that she was voting against same-sex marriage. So she sort of had her cake and ate it too there in the sense that she wanted to facilitate the democratic discussion about same-sex marriage. But as a as a conservative in the in the CDU party, she felt that she personally would vote against it. So that's one example of that. I mean, there are others as well. I mean, questions of migration and economics as well. They're both issues where you can see both sides of Merkel's politics. How did she end up as leader of the party and therefore chancellor? She began, as I said, as this kind of figure that had come out of East Germany, and she was in some ways well-placed to join the Helmut Kohl's ministry, but she was very junior at the time. I mean, she just won this seat in East Germany, in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. She became Minister for Women and Youth, and this was in 1991. And at the time, she was only 37. So in political terms, at least, that's still pretty young. And she was seen by many as plucked out of obscurity by Helmut Kohl, who was the very famous German leader at the time of German reunification. And she hung on to her ministry. And then in 1994, she was made Minister for the Environment and she made a decent fist of that as well. But then when the CDU lost power and they went into opposition, she suddenly found that her hitherto mentor and patron, Helmut Kohl, had been embroiled in a big scandal, the scandals about how elections were funded and his role in sort of soliciting funds for his party. And quite interestingly, she very publicly wrote a letter that was published that said that the party needed to move forward without Helmut Kohl. And a lot of people were quite surprised by this. Indeed, some people who thought of her as a kind of a cold loyalist were a bit angry about it. And so from there, she was sort of sidelined for a little while. Somebody else became the leader of the CDU for one unsuccessful attempt at election. And then she became leader of the party in time for the 2005 election, which she won at the age of 51, which again, in political terms, is really quite young. What kind of state was Germany in when she became Chancellor, how are they doing sort of placed in the world and economically? And has she made progress from there? Certainly, economically, that's been her focus as Chancellor. And it's not to say that Germany was in a woeful situation prior to her arrival. In some ways, her centrist attitude towards many issues meant that there was a lot of continuity between her government and the SPD government or the coalition government before her. But some of the things that she did, I suppose, that really pointed to her particular take on economics were her insistence on what she called the Schwarzer Null, which is the black zero. That is to say that your budget had to be in surplus. So she was very keen to make sure that all budgets remained in surplus. And many people pointed out that that perhaps sometimes came at the expense of some pretty desperately needed infrastructure. But on the other hand, the other part of her platform, I suppose, was running a current account surplus, which meant effectively making sure that German exports were super competitive and that they were making a lot of money from exporting. And that's certainly the case. I mean, they did very well, particularly with the opening up of China. Germany did well with their manufacturing, so cars and also pharmaceuticals. They were able to sell loads of those to China, but also to elsewhere. So the economy really picked up, but in a way that meant it was not always necessarily invested straight back in to German infrastructure or to you know, hospitals and roads and those kinds of things, but rather making sure that it was kind of kept, if you like, for a rainy day. Now, Angela Merkel was re-elected with her party four times. Is that a reflection of her leadership or is that a reflection of Germans and the way they see their politicians? Because Helmut Kohl before her was also re-elected four times. So is that a sign of how Germans like their politics, very stable, or is that more a reflection of her leadership? 
Yeah, a bit of both. I mean, you're quite right that Germans don't change government on a whim, but part of it is also her approach to politics, again, which was to push towards the centre to try, if you like, to bring over the social democratic voters that Gerhard Schröder had had as chancellor and to try and govern with the majority of people in the centre. Now, that's a pretty tough balancing act in terms of her own party. So there were a lot of people on the right of the party, so figures like Friedrich Merz, for example, who felt that she had gone too far in the direction of the centre. And others argued that by presenting herself as a centrist, particularly on social issues, that she allowed some oxygen to the far right. The CDU used to have a saying that to the right of the CDU lies only darkness. And what has happened since Merkel and certainly since 2015 and the immigration issues of 2015, which she handled in some ways deftly, is that it allowed the emergence of this far-right party, the alternative for Germany, which has been able to latch its hooks into particularly Eastern German states in a way that's been really unedifying. So some in the party have said, well, that's been a bit of a problem since the move to the centre. But of course, for many Germans, the idea that you would govern the country from the centre seems to be an infinitely sensible kind of idea. So again, it depends on who you're talking to as to whether or not that's been great work by Merkel or whether it's created some problems for the CDU in the long term. And I think at the moment, that's a very live discussion inside her party as she sort of has stepped down. Where does she stand amongst other global leaders? We've seen her go toe-to-toe with Vladimir Putin. There's that very famous image of her standing over Donald Trump at, uh, at a world leaders meeting. Where does she stand as far as respect from other global leaders? For those kinds of leaders, the ones you're talking about, Putin and Trump, who see themselves very much in terms of kind of a staunch nationalism and a very machismo approach to politics, it's fair to say that they don't like her, although I think Putin, I think, respects her. I mean, they have a sort of a strange relationship. I mean, Putin's fluent in German, Merkel's fluent in Russian, and so they sort of understand one another very well and where they stand on most issues very well. But I think in some ways her approach to politics is almost the opposite of hers. So, for example, she dislikes spectacle. She's very doggedly procedural in the way in which she manages things. She's, if you like, kind of quietly powerful. She doesn't like jingoistic nationalism or emotional nationalism, and she doesn't like to make a big splash on the global stage. So in many ways, her approach has always been softly, softly. And in many ways, that has been difficult for leaders like Putin and Trump to sort of come to terms with. But others, of course, I mean, most famously, perhaps Barack Obama found her extremely easily to work with. And in fact, I think she and Obama, between them, I think, had an enormously productive relationship that cemented in many ways things like NATO and the transatlantic relationships that meant that the relationship between Germany and the United States was able to withstand the Trump era in a way. Germany could kind of hold its breath under Merkel and wait for other days and other leaders to appear. Now, something that she seems to have avoided that other female world leaders haven't is real scrutiny about appearance and family life. I'm not sure how she's managed to avoid that. I mean, Julia Gillard copped it so terribly here about not having children and about what she wore every day. And I mean, it might not have always been this way, but it seems from an outsider's perspective that she seems to have gotten on with a job with very little of that. I mean, she has attempted certainly to keep her private life private. And perhaps in Germany, there's still a reluctance to bring family into it and to discuss those sorts of issues. She certainly never presented herself as first and foremost as a female leader, but rather simply as a leader. But that said, I mean, very famously, she's always, up until very recently, when asked the question, are you a feminist? She was always quite, in some ways, strategically evasive about that question until a couple of weeks ago, perhaps, where 
she said, yes, no, I do consider myself a feminist. But as a leader of a conservative political party, she always was able to tactically sort of dodge that question, even as she very clearly was able to lead in her own right. What do you think is the legacy Angela Merkel leaves behind? It depends who you ask. I mean, if you're a Syrian or Afghan refugee that was able to come to Germany and start a new life, then, I mean, that is going to be an amazing legacy for them. And I think the way she phrased things during that 2015, 2016 refugee crisis was really quite, for some people, very welcome. The phrase, wir schaffen das, we can do this or we can manage this, was something that had really hardly ever been heard anymore when asylum seekers had been seen as, you know, particularly by nationalist leaders had been presented as a threat She turned that around and said, no, this is a great opportunity for Germany. Other things, I suppose environmental politics will be an area that people will remember. I think she took very seriously the need for change in the way in which the economy ran and approaches to fossil fuels, albeit in a sense of, you know, kind of how can we keep the current way of doing things running, but we have to make them greener. So she was good at, I suppose, having a cake and eating it too there as well. She, for example, shut down Germany's nuclear power plants after the Fukushima incident in Japan, but at the same time built this kind of enormous gas pipe between Germany and Russia for cheap power. But on the other hand, she's also kind of built this massive wind power capacity and she's fostered an electric car industry. So environmentally, she'll probably be remembered as well. I think economically, she'll be remembered for her really tough stance on things like the Eurozone crisis and her insistence on the Schwarzenegger at home. So I don't think there'll be any statues built to Angela Merkel in the streets of Athens when she goes. I think that the austerity that was part of her response to the Eurozone crisis was very difficult for parts of Europe and that meant that places like Greece did see the crumbling of infrastructure and even some social tension and political tension arise as a result of the German approach there. But banks, enemies of surplus deficits and fans of economic rectitude will think of her economics very favourably. Same-sex marriage, of course, is another issue that she was able to usher through, but again, with some private doubts of her own. But I suppose in many ways, that's the hallmark of a democratic leader, which is to facilitate a discussion where you suspect that you still don't have the numbers, but you actually want to push the conversation forward. And, I mean, the other thing, I suppose, was dragging the CDU towards the centre, that is to say towards a kind of an electorally winning strategy of governing with many of the SPD's usual voters as well as her own CDU voters. For many of us looking in on Germany, it will be strange to see them led by anyone else. Angela Merkel is a politician without ego, a woman of strength who left the European Union in a much better place than when she became leader 16 years ago. Known not as an innovator, but more an incredible manager, able to seek compromise and stay calm in the face of a crisis. She'll always be the mother that hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees can thank for helping them in their time of need. Angela Merkel has been pivotal in the success of Germany finding a way to tackle climate change and still grow to become the world's fourth largest economy. But even if all that doesn't impress you, remember, she's one of the few people in the world, man, woman or other, to have the nerve to roll her eyes at Putin and Donald Trump, a gesture that comedians have immortalised in skits, like this one from the BBC. You did it to Putin and at least I know spy of the Trumps. I do not roll my eyes. Yeah, I, I'm afraid you do. <gasps> oh my God, I'm rolling the eyes. And I always thought that I had such a serene and beautiful poker face at the summit. 
This episode of The Quickie was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane, with audio production by Ian Camilleri. And if there's a new story you'd like us to check out in a little more detail for you, just shoot us through an email, thequickie at mamamia.com.au, or find us on the socials, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or Mamma Mia Podcasts on TikTok. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.